I like to find a theme in the readings or a sermon, but I found it very difficult to find a theme between the first reading and the gospel. So I would like to preach half a sermon on the first reading and half on the gospel and then see if we can bring them together at the end. In Exodus, we see that the Hebrew nation has been set free from Egypt across the Red Sea. And the third moon, this would make it the way we count, two months later, they leave a town where apparently there was water and such, and they go out into the wilderness to the mountain of Sinai, where God has ordained that they should go and he would speak to them through Moses. Notice the offer that God makes them. You will be mine. You will be my people. You will be my precious possession. You are to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Does that sound familiar? In 1 Peter 2, 9, he says the same thing to us. Christians are to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What do the people respond? Yes, whatever you say. It doesn't show up that much in this part of the book, but they're terrified. They begged Moses not to let God speak to them anymore. It was too frightening. They were not allowed to touch the mountain. If even an animal happened to wander up and touch the mountain, it would be slain. So, Moses, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us. We are terrified. They would have said yes to anything, I believe, at that point. What was it that they said yes to? If you read the next three chapters of Exodus, the next chapter is the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, along with a great number of um, civil and religious regulations. Chapters 21 to 23 continues that. What is God doing here? Well, first of all, I'd like to mention that we live in a heavily Orthodox Jewish neighborhood, and last Sunday they celebrated the feast of this giving of the law. So our calendars slip and slide a little bit between the Jewish calendar and ours. So they celebrate this feast every year. God was forming a people, a nation. So they had been led out of captivity. They probably had some informal organization in Egypt, but probably not much. They weren't free to make the laws. They weren't free to celebrate the way they wanted. So God is now forming them as a people with a civil law, a religious law, and a moral code. Did it work? Not even 40 days. Moses went up to the mountain and stayed too long, and the people got worried. What did they do? They violated the first and second commandment. They made an image. Now, scholars think they made this image thinking they were honoring their God who led them out of Egypt, but he had told them not to make an image. Why not? We have to think of the type of pagan culture that they were in. Every land had its spirits, its heavenly princes, perhaps its demons. And sacrifice had to be offered to these gods, even to the point of child sacrifice. So they couldn't stand it. We're in this new land. Somehow we have to honor our God because apparently Moses isn't coming back. So it didn't work very long. 
If you want to read how bad it got at times, read Psalm 106. However, there was always among the Hebrew nation a faithful remnant. Their high moral code drew many admirers in the ancient world and many followers and even converts. And so the Jewish nation has survived. There was recently a Wall Street Journal article about anti-Semitism, figuring why, how is it that the hatred of the Jews also survives? And he says, it's a Jewish rabbi writing this, the very idea that God has one chosen people is offensive, especially to the secular world. I think it's even deeper than that. God has an enemy, a Satan, who wants to destroy his kingdom. And these are the people that God made a covenant with. So there's a continual battle for them to be destroyed. And yet, they are still bearing witness. We are very impressed with the faith and traditions of many of our Orthodox Jewish neighbors. It's different now. If you read Hebrews 12, 18 to 22, the author says, We have not come to a mountain that we can't touch, that we have to be afraid and terrified of, but rather we have come to the holy Mount Sion in heaven. What happened? Well, we know what happened. It was Jesus who atoned for our sins and redeemed us, and more than that, put his spirit in us so that we are sons, crying, Abba. We are not separated. But I still think we have to remember that God is holy, that God is very holy. That when uh, John, in the book of Revelation, saw Jesus, he fell down. He was overcome with awe. So God is holy. And we might also ask ourselves, as we look at the history of Christianity, have we done any better than the Jewish people? It might be worth thinking about that. Or perhaps we also are becoming a faithful remnant. I'd like to look at the gospel now, and not so much on the terms of the constructions that Jesus gave to the twelve apostles when he sent them out, but I'd like to look at the apostles themselves. Look at this a little from their point of view. So Jesus had been traveling throughout Galilee, he typically preached in the synagogue. Everybody walked, so maybe he got to a synagogue a week, a different one. And he wanted to speed things up, apparently. He sent out advanced men, so to speak, to preach in more towns, especially towns where he was about to come. Now, the Twelve is a fairly diverse group. We know we have some small businessmen, some fishermen, a zealot, which might easily be described as the party that wanted to make Israel great again, and even to the point, eventually, of resorting to terrorism. A tax collector was Matthew collecting the temple tax, the Roman tax of tribute, or perhaps even both. Well, how were these 12 picked? If you read this gospel, it just kind of looks like all of a sudden Jesus picked 12 apostles. 
if you read the Gospel of John it's in Acts, it's not quite that simple. So in Acts 1, verse 21, Peter stands up and says, Judas has betrayed us. Judas has committed suicide. We have to pick someone to take his place. And there is a requirement for that. It is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So all 12 of these apostles responded when they heard the news about John the Baptist, and they went into Judea to the Jordan River where he was baptizing. And more than that, Jesus remained there for a while also, baptizing in the same area as John until he was arrested and put in prison. And John 4.1 says, When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So probably the twelve came from these disciples who had stayed with Jesus at least for a time and actually baptized people who came to repent. But Jesus went back to Galilee, and apparently Peter and Andrew and James and John went back to their business of fishing, and Matthew went back to his job of tax collecting. He had heard John say, he said John the Baptist say, be fair. He didn't say, give up your job. So Matthew presumably was now an honest tax collector. <laughs> and the way the tax collecting worked, apparently, he would have interacted with Peter and Andrew and James and John. So they catch their fish, they bring their fish in, they take them to the marketplace. Some of them, I presumably, were sold fresh. Some of them may have been salted or smoked or whatever. But the tax collector was right there in the marketplace. So it's like if you come out of Snooks, you pay your sales tax right there to the tax collector or whatever he thinks you should pay. So when Jesus sent out the 12, you could play some almost comic games with this if you wanted to. Did he send Peter out with Matthew? Had they gotten over the fact that they didn't like each other very much? Now, Jesus gave, the gospel says, Jesus gave them authority to preach, cast out demons, heal the sick. How did he do that? I want you two to go to Chesterfield Valley and preach about the kingdom of God. Okay, we've heard that. We can do that. And lay hands on the sick and maybe even raise the dead. And you go to Clarkson Valley and do the same thing. I have a suspicion that one of the reasons Jesus sent them two by two was so that they wouldn't back out. I would be tempted to, but if I had a companion with me and he would say, Jesus knows what's going on, I'd have to get up the nerve to actually lay hands on a sick person expecting that, they, that something would happen, that they would be healed. And then Jesus didn't make it any easier. The rest of Matthew after this 
elaborates on the persecution you're going to suffer, on the problems you're going to have. And he goes on more probably as a future lesson for the church, the length to which he goes. But he tells them there's going to be people who won't receive you or going to be people who oppose you. That didn't make it any easier. But they went. How did it go? Well, Matthew doesn't say here, but there's another time when Jesus sent out 70 two by two. And when they came back, they returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submitted to us in your name. Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Kind of like, yes, I know, I saw. And rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Translated, don't let it go to your head. It was my name in which you did this. So what authority do we have in Jesus' name? Proclaiming the kingdom of God? Absolutely. Some of us in this church have missionary calls. I have a friend who's been a missionary since he was early 20s, raised his family in Mexico, has been a missionary around the world for 45 years. I have a friend, an electrical contractor, who's been going to the Missouri prison in Pacific for approximately 30 years after he came to Christ. What about the majority of us? Well, first of all, we can certainly support missionaries, especially the ones we know. I support uh, run missions, reaching reaching unreached nations, I think. I forgot. But we can do what is at hand. There are small ways that we can proclaim the gospel. And Jesus said, those who are faithful in small things, more will be given. So at the very least, we can always have an answer ready, as Peter says in his first letter. Always be ready to give a defense to all who ask you a reason for the hope that is in you. What is the reason for your hope? I believe in Jesus. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe in leading a biblically-based life. Because Christ is alive, be holy as God is holy. There is persecution even for doing that. Now, as Matthew warned, And there have been arrests and vandalism for those who stand up for life, for a biblically-based life, even martyrs. But what about healing and casting out demons? Well, the disciples did it after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. I asked the missionary friend I referred to, who spent 45 years in various countries around the world, what do you say about Demons, about casting out demons. He said, and I read this elsewhere, first of all, if you happen to run into a demonic manifestation, don't get into a discussion. Just say, be quiet, in Jesus' name, get out of here. That's it. And he said, he's seen manifestations of evil, and there are other people who have seen or felt manifestations of evil. Apparently, the characteristic sign of evil is cold, a feeling of coldness. And he said, it's usually more subtle now, but there are people who suffer from a spirit of fear or a spirit of sadness or heaviness. 
And there are scripture verses that address these topics. We are not given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of a sound mind. And these can be invoked on people who suffer from things. I don't think there's a separation between mental illness and demonic influence. I think the one needs an opening for the other. People who are suffering from depression hear lies in their heads. They are told lies, things that are not true, and they have trouble dealing with that. So praying to know the truth, to be relieved of this spirit of oppression. Healing prayer. Many of us have witnessed healings. We have prayed for healings here. Just uh, my favorite I've seen at least two miracles, miraculous healings. One occurred in my kitchen when my son Matt, younger son, was about a year old, not speaking much yet, but crawling around. I was letting a babysitter out the kitchen door, and as I shut the kitchen door, I heard this crunch, and then I heard him scream. He had come up, crawled up behind me, stuck his fingers around the door, and I shut the door on his fingers. I grabbed his hands, and I could see them starting to swell, and I saw a red mark on the back of his third and fourth fingers. And something in me said, pray. You've been reading about it. You've been hearing about it. Do it. So I said, okay, Jesus, and that was as far as I got. I felt a force in my chest, and Matt stopped crying instantly. I watched his fingers after that. And there was never even a bruise. When Linda came into the room about 20 minutes later, she had finished a piano lesson, I told her what had happened. Matt knew what I was talking about. He couldn't say anything in words, but he got real excited and started babbling. Yesterday we heard a man tell about his wife who's been sick for quite some time, and she fell and broke a bone in her upper arm and was in rehab. And if you know how the rehab system works, after three weeks, she wasn't making any progress. Her hemoglobin count was dangerously low, and so she was taken out of rehab and put in hospice. Well, our friend has, is a very devout man of prayer, retired, very Christian businessman, and he had networks of people praying for her. And he came in to see her, I think it was just Friday, Thursday or Friday, and she was markedly better. She was alert, clear-eyed, talked with him, had conversations with him. Now he's saying if she maintains that, she'll be taken off hospice and brought home. I have this strange need not to give thanks, to credit to God unless I'm sure it's Kind of a silly way to look at it. I'm coming around to saying, pray always. Pray for healing always. We don't know how it's all working out, and it's all to the glory of God. Our very lives are to the glory of God. So in conclusion then, in Exodus, we are called to be the people of God to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a body of Christ. And in the gospel, we are commissioned to go into a hostile world, 
proclaiming the gospel and healing and deliverance. And Jesus has assured us, I am always with you. Amen.